Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn, and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Oh man, am I excited for this one. After 54 episodes, this one's number 55, I can honestly say that I've learned from everyone. I've learned from every single guest that I've had on the show, but my guest today might take the record. In fact, I can't think of another guest who's provided more valuable insights that I'm going to apply into my business. I think he broke my insight meter because I have no idea just how many insights that he gave, but I'll just say these pack a punch. His book is called Content DNA, but it's much more than just about content. It's about creating an identity. And we hear the buzzword brand thrown around all the time. And so I don't want to be careful using that word with my guest, John Asperian, his brand is his promise. And that's what I love about the way he approaches business. On this episode, we explore exactly what his promise is to his customers, and I think it will provide inspiration for anyone on their entrepreneurial journey. So what do we cover? We cover a lot, so I'm just gonna share a few of the highlights. We talk about how to create a memorable tagline or brand message, and I'll give you a clue. Think musically. We also talk about his own content DNA and the building blocks that make up how he approaches his content, but honestly, how he approaches his business at large. We also talk about the importance of what he calls a manifesto. And this is really a great way to hold yourself accountable to your customer. He puts in black and white exactly what his customers should expect from him. And I love the thought that he put into crafting that. We also learn how he approaches his newsletter and he shares his secret on why he thinks he gets nearly double, yes that's right, double the open rate that the average newsletter gets. And of course we dive deep into the content realm and John shares what he calls his chair framework. We also learn how to create effective titles which aren't clickbaity but actually do a phenomenal job of inspiring the reader to read whatever it is you're writing. And John shares his number one secret for great copywriting. But this only scratches the surface of what we cover. As you can tell, I'm inspired and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump into the conversation. 
John Asperian, thanks for being on Inside Out. Billy, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to speak to you. Can't wait to get stuck in. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'll just tell you a little backstory. So Liam was the person who first shared your LinkedIn profile with me. And he just said, you got to follow this guy. He's got amazingly valuable LinkedIn nuggets that you cannot afford to miss these. And I have not been disappointed ever since I started looking at the content you're putting out there. Every single one of them brings value, brings insights. Truly, this is an honor to have this opportunity to have this conversation. Oh, thanks, Billy. Those are exactly the words I wrote on my bribe script for you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I didn't mess it up. We have something in common, which I doubt you've had any podcast start this way. When you were 24, you were diagnosed with something. When I was 25, I was also diagnosed with something. What is that something? That something is gout. Oh, wow. I'm yeah, sorry man. for you, brother, because it is really, really a pain. It really is. As a 43-year-old man, and now, what, nearly 20 years later, I've had so many acute attacks, debilitating, yeah. I mean, where I can't even walk. I mean, and it's been in my knees, my feet. Do you have one place that it happens more often than not? It's mostly in my feet, but it sometimes it has affected my knee recently, and it's horrible when it's like that. And And people who haven't suffered from this really can't understand how debilitating it is. It's re- It really can get you down really badly. So I'm trying to manage it now through some weight loss. It's long overdue. Thank goodness that video is just head and shoulders only. <laughs> I've coped, and I'm also 43, so I've coped with this for a long time too. But yeah, we'll get there. We're close in age, and we share the King's disease, they call it. And I'm sure people didn't tune in to hear us talk about our ailments. So let's dive in to a topic that I'm really deeply intrigued by, and that is your approach to content and the way in which you conduct business. With gout, it's almost like we have an allergic reaction to something, and whether that be beer or rich foods or a number of things, it could be dietary and it also is hereditary, but you have an allergic reaction to some things in business. I'm going to do kind of an opening lightning round. I'm going to say something. I want you to tell me why you don't like these things. <laughs> okay. Adverts. Oh, I, I just think that they're a cost instead of an asset. And I think content is the asset that we should be building. Okay. I fully agree. Salesy messages. Oh God, it's such a turnoff, especially on LinkedIn. People just pitch you day one. They don't even know you from Adam. That's not a way to build trust is trying to sell at someone. No, not for me at all. Why don't you want to be a brick in someone's tag wall. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I get tagged in lots of things, especially on LinkedIn. And it just shows that the other person is trying to chase some engagements. It's a hollow thing to do. Build more meaningful relationships with people, and then you get the right to tag them, but don't make them just another number. Here's one which I especially appreciate because conventional wisdom says otherwise. And I applaud you for not simply going with the herd on this, which is I'm only going to give you value. Hmm call it a PDF, call it a course, call it whatever, if you give me your email address. Why is that something you're not a huge fan of? Yeah, I just think that kind of value exchange, I think we're too mature for that now. I think people were willing to do it in the past. These days, they want to be sure of value. I think people will trust us if we show some trust in them first. So if I'm giving you something of value and it's good enough, then a proportion of my audience will then contact me because of that. I don't need to take something from you before I give you something. We should give first, receive afterwards. And you talk about this in your book. You say we should trust them Therefore, they will show trust in us. And it is something that is just a a new shift in thinking. Another shift in thinking, and frankly, I agree with you, is... Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This idea that people think that they should be endorsed simply because they endorse me, even though I have no idea who they are. Tell me why that bothers you, because it bothers me as well. Yeah, because you can't really vouch for a person. You know, you can't endorse or recommend someone unless you really know them or have taken their service before. And I think there's too much of that kind of trading that goes along. You review my book if I review your book, and neither of us have read each other's book. It's that kind of thing. You know, How can you possibly vouch for someone? So I think you need to earn that trust. That happens by turning up in one place consistently and kind of building trust over a long period. It doesn't happen quickly, and there, there are no short shortcuts to success. So trying to get your endorsements, recommendations, anything up by taking shortcuts, I think that doesn't work. People will smell a rat eventually. Mm -hmm. And it's shortcuts like those that you advocate against. I can't tell you, man, it's like such a breath of fresh air. I don't want to leave any juice left in the orange. What else are you vehemently opposed to that's a commonly held belief in your industry, either on LinkedIn or with content? What do most people think this is the right way to do something that you say, no, I don't actually agree with you. Yeah, well, I think one common practice on LinkedIn that I totally disagree with that a lot of trainers will recommend that you do is to try and build your network really, really quickly. You try and scale, you try and growth hack, I don't know, whatever term you want to use for it. But all that is, is just building numbers, building followers just really super quickly. But you don't get a chance to get to know your network. And I prefer the kind of slow and steady approach to maybe connect with five people a day instead of 500 people a day and actually get to to know them, find out what they're interested in, because those people will want to support you when the time comes. And that's the approach I've taken. Honestly, it's the most unsexy message in the world. Basically, turn up, do good things, and be patient because it takes a long time to become known for doing the right things in your industry. But the long-term payoff of that is you get respect, you get authority. And when you need to call in favors, you can call them in with a clear heart because you know that you've been doing good work. So it's just all of those shortcuts to, to building way too fast means that you don't have a, a stable foundation, I think. Yeah, it's such a great point. We are only one human, provided we're not hiring a bunch of bots and assistants mm -hmm. to do all our work, which you also advocate against, as do I. Because, I mean, how could anyone replace you? You're the one building these relationships. Yeah. And because we're only one person, how can we realistically form a a true relationship with 500 people a day. Five people a day, you can start the groundwork for a relationship with five people a day. 500, it's impossible. Thinking of it from a numbers game perspective isn't necessarily, quite frankly, I agree with you, is not the right approach. I want to talk about somebody who is near and dear to your heart, who has been a mentor, a large influence on who you are, and that's Mark Schaefer. Can mm -hmm. you share what you learned from him? If you could highlight some of the huge building blocks that you gained through him. Well, I mean, I was introduced to content marketing through him. So this is the idea of building an educated audience who you communicate with through your content rather than trying to buy ads or rather than making a load of cold calls or cold pitches through email. So, the, so that introduction to content marketing was great. And he interviewed me for his 2017 book, Known, which was all about how to build a personal brand and answered the question, can anyone 
become known. And during that, I was one of his interviewees and he interviewed another hundred or so people. And he found that it takes on average about two and a half years or 30 months Mm-hmm. to become known in an industry. When you listen to someone with that much experience who's talked to that many successful people, the idea of, okay, I can write six blog posts and be at the top of Google becomes ridiculous. Right. Like no one's going to do You're not going to get a Lamborghini overnight. You're not going <laughs> to get... And also, you're not going to get biceps overnight. You know, you've got to go to the gym for a long time to get those biceps. And everyone who's successful has started with humble beginnings and everyone has started with zero followers, right? So it takes time to build these things. Nothing really happens quickly. So that 30-month mindset, he taught me that. And I think I tell that to every client I speak to because there are a lot of false expectations and the people who are selling those false expectations, sadly, often get rich because people don't want the unsexy message. They want the, Mm. hey, I want killer abs and I want them tomorrow, but Ideally, I want them today. That's not going to work. So my message isn't anywhere near as kind of impactful as that. But the people who listen, who start creating content now, start defining their brand identity, which helps them make better content, they're the ones who are going to be better placed in the future when it's going to be much harder to stand out because everyone will have a blog, everyone will have a YouTube channel. It'll be much harder then. Right now, there's still time. Well, we live in a world of instant gratification. And so people think they want something right now, immediately to your point. It's much like working out. You don't go to the gym, lift a few dumbbells and say, all of a sudden you have muscles. And I want to talk about what you just mentioned with regards to branding and your message and who you are. You have a great story. I'd love for you to share it about how you had this breakthrough moment where you became relentlessly helpful person you are today. Can you talk about that story? So we were at a conference and, and Mark was speaking and he invited me on stage to speak with him. So that was a planned thing. And we had a few questions kind of mapped out beforehand. But just as we were finishing up, he decided to ask me an unplanned question. And he said, how are you going to remain relevant in a market full of options. And I wasn't prepared for that. And somehow I came out with, I'm going to create relentlessly helpful content. And that moment there stuck with me. And I went away and I started thinking, I might be onto something here. And I started using it. And the most important thing happened, which is when I started using it, people started echoing it back to me. Like it was the chorus of a song, call and response. You know, you say it, they say it back. And that had never happened to me before. And I realized that I was really onto something. And that moment had happened purely by chance. But it led me to thinking that if I can be really clear on what my other brand values are and then communicate those consciously with the world. Because the thing about branding, all the real experts will say that your personal brand or any brand is actually just what other people think about you. It's mm-hmm. what you think about yourself, which is true. But then if you just leave things to chance like that, then you're not in the best position to move forward. So if you can at least do something to consciously sway people's thinking. So if you can say, if you can put out into the world, here are my four or five brand values, and you can continually reinforce that message, that gives you the best chance of putting those ideas into people's heads. So Relentlessly Helpful came about by chance. And I thought to myself, I was lucky that that happened. I don't want other people to have to rely on that kind of luck. Let me kind of formulate this idea into a book and give people a way of kind of defining what their personal brand should be and therefore how their content and how their marketing should flow from that. 
Mm. Well, a big part of your framework for your book is the DNA of your brand and the really the building blocks of your business. And so we'll get into that in one minute. Before we do, I don't want to leave the the tagline because I want to underscore what you said. And what what hit me as you were just describing it is when you said that your brand is not what you say, but what your customers say. But actually, I don't know if that's, I agree with the second part, but what you're saying, which it's kind of like hit me is actually you plant that seed for what they say. And if you leave it to chance, they're going to make up any number of things. But if you find, as you call it, like the hook to the song, right? You find that hook to the song that they then repeat back what you're doing is you're influencing them to understand and recognize your brand for being what it is. Yes. Before we get into your brand specifically, I want to talk about consistency and congruence, which is the subtitle of your book. Mm. And what you talk about is that using consistency and congruence needs to be the same shape everywhere. Yeah. Why is that? And how do you do that? I think because we're so short on time, people need to have very, very small slot in their memory for each person that they deal with. And so you want to give them an immediate impression of what you're all about. Visually, that could be having the same colors, the same shapes in your visual design. In terms of your words, you can always be saying the same sort of message. In terms of your brand, it's always the same core values. It makes it easier for you to remember someone. Like if I told you about a guy who did 17 different things, and yeah, he used to do this, and he used to do that, and now he does this, and he has all of these skills. If you were to try and call to mind that person and explain it to someone else in, I don't know, 10 words, you'd really struggle. And so your brain probably isn't going to want to remember that guy. It's fuzzy in your head. Mm. But if you go, oh, that cartoon guy on LinkedIn who does copywriting, that's enough. That, that's fine. I'm in. You've remembered me. So I've given you the impression. What you want to do is try and condense all of your, everything that's the essence of you into a few brand values. And, and that's the thing that you want to keep bringing out in all of the content that you create. I just want to say one other thing about what you asked before. Well, one of the big mistakes that clients make is that they think that they've defined their brand because they've gone through some kind of exercise before. But then they come to me and I say, okay, have you done a branding exercise? Oh yeah, we have. Okay, so tell me about your brand. Well, we're professional, <laughs> we're friendly, we're approachable. I was like, these are not brand values. These are just hygiene factors. (laughs) Everyone should be approachable, right? So you might as well say that you breathe oxygen. You're not telling them anything with that. You need your brand identifiers, and I recommend having four or five of them, should be sufficiently differentiated that if you put four or five of them together, you should be different from pretty much every other business out there. should be something that's unique, really. So professional, friendly, approachable, that's not going to cut it anymore. You need something that is really distinctive, that gets to the heart of you. And that's how you make a memorable shaped brand, I think. Mm. Well, let's dive in. Let's give them some examples, which you have some wonderful ones. So let's talk about your the building blocks of of who you are. I love these. (laughs) Okay. So in the book, I list four main brand values. So the first one, the principal one really is this idea about being relentlessly helpful. This is where the whole thing came from. And a point to make here is that when you come up with a unique brand block like that one is, 
you have to really sell that. You have to live that thing. If I say relentlessly helpful, I'm not saying I'm partially helpful. I'm not saying I'm helpful on Mondays. I'm saying relentlessly helpful. That's a big, big promise, right? And so you've got to live the evidence of these things. So mm-hmm. you can't commit to a brand identity that isn't true to you. That's that's a really important thing to get right. So relentlessly helpful is one of them. So I will do my very, very best to help people in every situation that I can. I'll Rather than turn people away, I'll try and find them a service provider if I'm not available, that kind of thing. Put out lots of tips, lots of ways of helping people. I say that I'm a teacher not a preacher. So there are lots of ways, especially in things like digital marketing and content marketing and writing content the way I do. There are lots of different ways to get to an end point. You know, this isn't just a math equation. For me to say, this is the only way that you can do this. I don't believe in that approach. I will give you guidance. I will teach you, but I'm not going to preach to you. and not trying to tell you that I'm this great guy who knows everything and you have to follow my way, otherwise you're lost. I call myself a cheeky geek as well, because I love putting humor into my content. It was a big mistake that I made kind of before 2016. I was very suit and tie and trying to be professional because that's what everyone has to be, right? But that's not me. You know, I'm wearing a cartoon T-shirt. It's, <laughs> it's stupid for me to be that person when I am not really that person, right? So this is the congruence thing in action, is if I'm trying to be suit and tie on LinkedIn, And then you meet me in a hotel lounge and I'm just laughing and joking and and totally relaxed and informal and wearing jeans and t-shirt. There's a disconnect, right? People can see a difference. They might think, oh, well, well, I was expecting you to turn up in a suit and tie. Well, no, I never wear a suit and tie. It would be stupid. So I like to have fun. I like to be a bit cheeky, a bit irreverent. So I put that into my content as much as I can. There's always a humorous PS there somewhere, right? And I also have the the last one is the attitude of gratitude. So I've got things like my Friday shout where I'll always try and pick out someone nice in my community and try and raise their level. Because I'm fortunate. I've got loads of LinkedIn followers now, thanks to a few years of hard effort. Other people don't have that kind of exposure. And I want to try and share the love as much as possible. It's not about me trying to build an empire. It's, it's want to share things around. And since writing the book, actually, I, I found I've, I've really hit upon a, a fifth element, which I probably should have put into the book really, is the Mm -hmm. ego experimenter. In a former life, if my teachers hadn't said a certain couple of things to me, I probably would have ended up becoming a biochemist. And if I'd done that, I would have been experimenting all the time. And I love poking, fiddling, testing. How does that menu work? What does that button do? What does this setting do? Why is it like this? And I used to be a software and hardware tester. And so experimenting is just in my blood. And it's something that I do a lot on LinkedIn. And as a result, I'm able to share my own unique research and it helps to get me visibility. So those are four or five brand values that I try to come out in everything that I create. Yeah. I noticed on your website that you added the eager experimenter and it's such a great way of approaching being active in a platform is to understand and pull it apart and poke at it. And then you could share the findings with your audience. And I know as somebody who's part of that fan group and and follower group, I thoroughly appreciate the time and effort you put in. And these aren't experiments that are like a day. These are sometimes month-long or long experiments that you take the time and careful attention to put together and provide for us. So thank you on behalf of everyone that also appreciates it. One of the things that you do when you're working with clients is you help them find their voice, 
And one of the insights that I had as you were sharing in your book is that if you're having struggle, think of a famous person who you'd like to share your message. Like, who is that person? Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about finding your voice and maybe some other ideas, including that, that would help somebody find their voice. Because you've clearly found and articulated very well who your brand is. And I love the humor part that that's infused in everything that you do. And it's so clear as day that you follow those things. You are relentlessly helpful. You do have so much gratitude and I love your shout outs. You are an experimenter. All of those things, they are you. How do you help someone else find their inner person that they should let shine through? If I'm doing a consultation with a client, it's just a case of really getting onto Zoom with them and just talking it through and talking through what matters to them. You know, what person do they want to be online? What is the real them? You can do this yourself. I mean, if you're reading the book, you'll see that one of the tips is to inspect your content diet. You look at the magazines, the newspapers, TV, the movies, the books, everything that you consume, and there probably is a lot of it. You look at that and just imagine that you weren't you. And you were just saying, oh, this person reads this newspaper and they, they read these books and they watch these movies and this is their favorite music. What impression does that give you of that person? That, that's a good starting point is to look at your own content diet. Another thing that you can do is, is speak to the people who are closest to you, the people who know you best and who are not afraid to speak their mind. You don't want yes men around you at this point. You want your friends or family that you can trust who can say, what is it about me? What are the things that really define me in your opinion? And use that to try and get an idea of what kind of brand identity you can form. Another method would be what I call in the book, the X factor word list method. I'm not sure if X factor is still going in the US, but it used to be quite a popular program over here. So you start with a very long list of potential keywords and then you kind of, you pick about 25 from them and then you can strike five and then think, hmm, strike another five and try and get down to a final five that you just can't get rid of and mm -hmm. then develop those a little bit. Uh, to come back to your original question, when I speak to executives and thought leaders, they often, truthfully, they feel that they're too busy to make time to do those kind of exercises. So a shortcut is for me to say to them, okay, so what kind of tone of voice? Is this more of like a Saturday Night Live kind of thing? Or is it more a different kind of show? Are you going for a political commentator? Are you going for whatever? And someone will say, well, no, I really like John Oliver's last week tonight, kind of irreverent, but intelligent. Let's go with that. Brilliant. Then I can imagine what that person's voice would sound like if they were reading something from this company's brochure. And I can write in that style. And it's a nice way of, it's a nice mental shortcut. It's not always possible, but it, it sometimes it's a good way of thinking. If I were to sound like a celebrity, who would I sound like? You can at least inhabit that for some of your content until you really flesh out what your brand identity should be. Right. And that's such a great shortcut for those that, and I love the way you put it, who feel they are too busy because it really is probably something that they should take the time to invest in. One of the things that you invested in is creating, oh, I almost think of it as an extension of those building blocks, which is your manifesto. It's your promises to your customer and to the people that are engaging with your content and looking at anything that you put out. How did you go about creating that? And maybe if you could share with the audience who's not familiar with it, what does the manifesto represent for you? Well, I think sometimes people get too hung, businesses get too hung up with some really grand mission statement. They're going to try and change the world. And you think you're just selling widgets or whatever it is, you know, come on. So what I thought was more practical than that is just saying, 
look, if you come to me and you come to visit my website and look at my content, here's what you will get. Here's what you won't get. It's a nice, simple thing. And unlike a political manifesto that politicians are probably more too keen to break when the time suits them, I actually mean this stuff. So if I say to you, you're never going to get any ads here, you're never going to get any pop-ups, I'm not going to try and sell hard at you, but you will get helpful content and you will get short emails and you will get a fun style. And that kind of sets the tone. That is my public promise. And as I said, with the brand identity thing, is if I don't live up to that, if I'm not relentlessly helpful, if I break what I said in my manifesto, you've got social media, you call me out, please. Because mm. I'm a fraud in that case. And I'm fine. I'm confident with that promise because I know that I'll hold it up. I think other people need to think very carefully about what they want their brand to be. It needs to be something that is going to be true for them always. True for them in COVID time, out of COVID time, when they're a two-person operation or when they're a 2,000-person operation. These things have to be absolutely at the core and have to always be true. And to those executives who don't have that time to define their brand identity, I say, if you do spend this time, every piece of content you ever create from now until whenever you retire will be easier because you know you have to do this and this and this, and it always has to have this shape. And similarly, I extend branding, not just to content. I mean, the book is called Content DNA, but actually it should be about everything you do. Like well, the way you treat people, the way you answer emails, the way you answer the phone, the, the way you write your invoices, the way you hire staff, the way you deal with complaints, it should be with that in mind. Like, what is my brand identity? Mm -hmm. How can we make sure that we enforce this? And I think people will respect that. And when they know what they're going to get, things become so much easier. There's no surprises. Know thyself. And I love what you just said about that even though the book is content DNA, the framework that you're providing, it really bleeds through into everything. And it provides a framework that a person could use to better understand what is the public promise? What is the flag in the ground that they're yeah. planting that they could say, this is the way I conduct business. And I love how you previously said that when you start to develop your voice, shortcut, you can Think of somebody. Do you, are you a Richard, Richard Branson? Are you R Ricky Gervais? Who is the character that you want to put out there? But it takes work to actually develop that. And even though that's a shortcut that exists, I think getting really, really comfortable with who you are and what you want to put out into the universe is time well spent. I want to double click on the email piece because I, one of the things I found fascinating is just the attention and care you put into just the email correspondence. Like somebody signs up for your email list, they're not just going to get a generic, you know, oh, opt-ins, you know, did you sign up? There's more to it than that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, I long held out on the creation of an email list because I was just kind of wondering what kind of value I could provide. But when I eventually committed to it, I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it in my style. I'm going to have fun with it. So instead of sending someone a boring welcome email, I thought, well, why don't I get a welcome video from an office character in the UK. So I got a Ricky Gervais lookalike to record a short video for me. And that person welcomes people to my email list. It is something different, but it's talk worthy, right? Because people might tell their friends about that or they'll reply to me. And from the point of view of my mailing list provider, if they can see people clicking links and clicking reply and getting involved in conversations, that means that my messages are being opened, they're being looked at, and therefore the distribution of them improves in the future. And in fact, my email 
open rates and click rates are probably more than double what the industry standard is. So I might not have the biggest list in the world, but it is an engaged list. And when the time comes that I need to make an ask, like, hey, guys, I'm writing a new book, or hey, guys, I've got a new LinkedIn course, or hey, I've got a price offer for you, those people are just more likely to want to be involved than mm-hmm. just thinking, oh, here's another sales message, or there's just another guy that I don't remember. Or I want them to remember me. And also, I, I, I've said you know, on my website that if I send you an email, it's going to be less than 200 words. Because I call my email list Espresso, right? I think, everyone, right. Should, I think everyone should actually name their email list because giving things names gives them more importance in your brain, right? It's got a name. It's a thing. It's not just a mailing list. It's a. It's got a name. And I can't call it espresso and then write 10,000-word emails, right? So I wanted to say, look, there's a 200-word limit on this. It's a short stack. <laughs> uh, so you, you won't be reading War and Peace when you get an espresso. <laughs> well, you give them a shot of espresso, which is pure value. You're not beating them over the head with another sales pitch, no. spamming them to death until they finally decide to opt out. There's a reason why your open rates are 40, 50% versus the industry average, which is far less than that. And it's a testament to you. And you're always looking for ways to bring your mojo, your recipe to the equation. And it could be something as minute as these micro content details. I mean, I've got lots of that kind of laced throughout the site. Like for example, my, my unsubscribe message is hate me and want to see me fail. Okay. Here's where to unsubscribe. It's that kind of vibe. It just comes from having created content for long enough that I just have given up the act. I'm Mm. just relaxing. I'm just being me. I'm just having fun. The good thing about that, it's a really hard thing to do. But if you can, listeners, if you can do this, if you can just take a breath and just say, how would I say it if I was speaking in person? And just do that thing. Make it conversational. It's one of the best copywriting tips is to write the way you talk. And if the way you write doesn't match the way you talk, you mustn't write that thing. Whatever that thing is, you mustn't write it because it's not you. And more and more people are responding better to this kind of informal writing. It's becoming the language of the web is more informal writing. So you can hold back the tide as much as you want, but this is what people actually expect these days. And even the big brands are doing it. So just if you be you, and in my case, you know, I can be try to be funny sometimes, it's natural for me to put that stuff in there. So I don't even need to think about it because it's just what I would say in person. That's what I think we need to do more of. That That's how to cut through and how to build a better connection with people. And talk about an important insight. One of the biggest through lines that I'm hearing you say right now that I read in your book, that I've heard in other interviews you've done is write like you speak. Yeah. Nobody wants to read a Shakespearean play. They want to have a pub conversation, a backyard barbecue conversation. Read it out loud is what you suggest to do. And you also give a framework for content, which I really love. It's called the chair framework where you talk about challenging, helpful, amusing, interesting, and relevant. I wonder if you could break those down and share with the audience why you've created that kind of framework for content creation. Yeah, I recommend that everyone comes up with their own personal brand identity, but I also accept that it's not you can't just click your fingers and suddenly you've got a personal brand. It takes a little bit of work, a bit of thought, okay? So until you get to that point, there's a useful framework that's kind of like a safety net that says, okay, I haven't got my brand identity sorted, but I can at least follow this routine to give myself some structure. And I found, especially on LinkedIn, the kinds of content that get the best kind of engagement and hence the best visibility are things that fall into these five categories. So the acronym is CHAIR, 
So it stands for challenging, helpful, amusing, interesting, and relevant. So challenging content is actually stuff that I don't personally do, but it can work really, really well on social media. And that's providing provocative opinion, something that really stirs debate. Sometimes you just ask a kind of loaded question and then sit back and wait for the comments to blow up. That kind of thing is great for visibility. I'm like you on that one, because I know you have a whole chapter dedicated to this idea of it's okay to be somewhat polarizing. In fact, the, the people that are the most polarizing, they often have the biggest fans. They may have the biggest detractors. Like you, I was raised to be a people pleaser. And so that's a little bit out of my comfort zone. But I think it's worth noting that it's not always a bad thing to having a distinct point of view that may be off-putting to some because there's going to be some that it's not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not my way of being, but it might be yours. And so it's worthwhile keeping this in mind. If you've got those opinions, then you absolutely should share them. If you think about a room full of 100 people, then 50 people, 60 people in there going, meh, he's okay. That's not going to get you real results. But if 10 of those people think this guy's the greatest thing ever, and the other people can't stand you or just are indifferent, that's brilliant because you might have a core group of really loyal fans who will shout from the hilltops and buy all your stuff and buy two copies of all your stuff. No one ever said their favorite color was beige, right? No, so. absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And, and you have to bear in mind that, and again, like you say, I've got a chapter in the book about this, that not everyone will like you and that's okay. And it, it's a difficult message to drill home because yeah, for the longest time, you, I didn't want to offend anyone. And therefore I've got this really boring middle of the road kind of content, but it's like middle of the road is risky. You're going to get hit by traffic mm-hmm. in, in either direction there, not the good kind of traffic either. So you need to polarize a little bit, to be honest, and that's that's making your brand shape is a big part of that. So to come back to chair, so challenging, helpful is, is probably that's my number one thing. You know, you have to create content that actually serves the ideal audience that you're trying to influence. So helping them is a good way to educate them. And then you've got amusing, interesting, relevant. The All of these types of content will get shit. Like amusing content tends to get shares. Interesting and relevant helps to build authority. So for people who are doing their due diligence on you, come along seeing you doing a load of relevant content about a certain topic, all of that stuff is going to help your content be seen. The chair framework is your in-between stage between you doing absolutely nothing in terms of creating content and having a really clear personal brand. The last part, relevant, what really struck me is, to your credit, you talk about the fact that a lot of people are posting things that are completely unrelated to their brand. They're basically Mm -hmm. scraping Instagram and Twitter for the latest viral video. And yeah, they may get views, they may get likes, they may even get comments, but do you really even know what that person does? You might just be seeing loads of viral memes from them and you think, oh, that's nice, but it's not relevant at all to their cause. And also you have to remember that the way that social media works is that you know if some person likes something or comments something or shares something, then a proportion of their followers will see that content. Now, if they don't like that content because it's irrelevant to them, I followed you because I need some expert on industrial windows or something, I don't know, and you're putting a load of cat memes in my feed, well, I'm going to unfollow you, right? And then I'm probably not going to hear from you again, and therefore I might not do any business with you. So, So you have to be wary about what your content footprint, your extended content footprint, which is not only the stuff that you create, but also the stuff that you interact with says about you. It's like having friends. You know, if you've got bad friends, that says something about you. So if you interact with bad content, 
that says something about you as well. The only kind of partial exception to this is where you've got, if you've got, especially if you've got a product-based business, you don't want to be talking all the time about your product, right? That would be really, really boring and would probably would feel salesy even if it's not directly salesy. But what you can do is you can kind of sell a bigger lifestyle around that thing. So for example, you know, there's this company called Chubby Shorts in, I think they're American. And, you know, they can't just talk about shorts all the time. So what they do is that they make their marketing around fun things that you can do on the weekend, because that is a way of aligning their brand with a bigger lifestyle thing. And then in that case, it kind of the whole picture makes sense, right? In that case, they, they are still being relevant. But if you just commenting on random stuff, that's not going to play well. It doesn't. And you you brought up a really great point that I think a lot of people don't think about, which is the your content footprint extends past the things that you yourself yeah. put out. And everything that you like or comment on can show up in the feeds of the people that follow you. And if they don't like it, yeah, there's a very good likelihood they're going to say, I, just, I don't have any time for this. One other kind of content piece is the title. And I could have brought this up to the top of our conversation where you, I asked you the things you don't like, which you're not a big fan of the clickbaity, sensationalized mm-hmm. titles, yeah. but you do have some really good advice for creating titles. And you do obviously know and talk about just how important titles are. I wonder if you could give a bit of the thinking behind how to create really, really good titles for your work. Yeah, well, well, they, they really are important because with attention spans for content not being as great as they might be, people will read a title and that will determine whether they read the rest of the stuff. So they might well have time to read the rest of the stuff, but if the title doesn't hook them in, then you've probably lost them. That doesn't mean that you should do clickbait. You should do something that is clear and that sells a promise that is then fulfilled by the content. If you don't fulfill that promise in your content, then you, you're going to lose those those people in the long term. So if you're optimizing for search engine optimization, really clear title that sells exactly what that article is going to tell you about. So things like putting numbers in headlines, writing things with a how-to in them to, to make it clear that it's an instructional piece, including dates in titles, these things are, are good for search engine optimization. For some reason, the human brain seems to like odd numbers more than even numbers, and particularly seven seems to be the most popular, not just in the Western culture. So if you put seven and a date and a how-to in your title, that could be a really, really great thing. If you're optimizing for something like YouTube, you might want to start, perhaps, you might want to start the headline with the main keyword or whatever the topic is. So if it was about LinkedIn, you might start with LinkedIn colon and then something else on YouTube, because that just kind of demands attention straight away. I think intrigue-based headlines, the ones where you've got no idea what's going to come up, I think that kind of thing can work only if you've already got a really big following and people are going to read it anyway, in which case all the rules are out. You know, you can be as creative as you want. If you're someone who's starting out, maybe you don't have many blog posts, you don't have a big following, you have to be as really clear as possible uh, about selling whatever it is that, that that article is about. Don't be too clever if it's going to muck with the clarity of your message. <laughs> and, and to your point, unless you have a large audience that's going to read your work no matter what, if it's too cryptic and yeah. doesn't really explain what it is, chances are people won't click on it. Uh, again, barring the person who already has a massive following. Yeah. You also suggest a couple tools, which I love the idea of front-loading keywords. And I love the idea of of using odd numbers, especially seven. Makes a ton of sense to me. Mm -hmm. You also have some tools that you use that actually rate 
numeric rating Sorry. your titles. Can you talk about those? Yeah. So uh, there are two that I mentioned in the book. So there's headline, co-schedules, headline analyzer, which is free, and also share through, which is free. So you go to both of those addresses. So perhaps you can share the links with your listeners and you can pop your headline in there and it will give you a breakdown of what it thinks your the strength of your headline is and gives you some tips on how you might be able to improve that. So I suppose an experienced professional writer will probably have a good handle on who their audience is and what will resonate with them best. And that might not always agree with what the automated tools will do. But if you haven't got any kind of support, it's probably a good starting point. It's it's like all kind of automated writing tools. Good professional is probably still better than an automated tool. Probably won't be the case in 20 years time, but right now, good professional probably is better. But if you don't have any support, it's good to lean on these things just as a bit of a sounding board. Like, could this be improved? How, where, how good is my writing right now? Another element of a piece of content is the visual component of it. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that you share in your book and that really you clearly follow is this idea of having a consistency with regards to the branding and also not just piecing together some random image on Canva Mm -hmm. and sticking a a title on it. You you have a a belief that it, it should help to tell the story and it it should follow a few core design principles. Yeah. You yourself claim, you know, don't claim to be a designer, but you've, you've hired that sort of stuff out. Talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about the image side of, of the equation. Yeah, well, I think it's really important to be congruent in your visuals as well as in your writing. So even though I'm a writer, I understand the power of visuals. So much of the brain is dedicated to visual processing. But if you can show a consistent shape in your visuals, so that means using the same colors, using the same fonts. If you use a logo, put it in the same part of the screen every time. If you use a certain shape in the background, use that shape every time. All of those things mean that with people scrolling social media at a million miles an hour, even if they just see your graphic, that subconsciously reminds them he's still alive, he's still doing something in this space, he's still relevant in some way, I remember him, even if they haven't stopped to, to watch the content. Whereas if you're just doing that with your with stock images, then, then that stock image could have been used by anyone. It doesn't tell anything. So what I recommend doing is probably investing just a small amount in getting some standard image templates prepared for your blog, for social media, maybe even for YouTube, if you've got a YouTube channel. And then you can edit those, you know, edit the text or maybe put a couple of different photos in there. So a designer has put together the architecture of these things, and then you can just do small edits to them. That automatically lifts the level of professionalism of all of your social content. And I think it helps to build that picture of who you are it reinforces the visuals. And it means that even if someone doesn't see the logo at the top, doesn't see your name, they go, I recognize that color scheme. I recognize that font. I know who wrote that. I want to read Mm -hmm. that thing. Mm -hmm. It's such a great point because brand is really something that we may not even consciously realize that we recognize because our subconscious picks up. It could be a color. It could be just the smallest little nuance one of the things you've done is you've brought this character Bitmojon to life. <laughs> yeah. And for those that don't know you, can you talk a little bit about how you found or how you decided to start using Bitmoji to bring to life your own 
cartoon character and yeah. you used it in so many different ways. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I found out about it through a friend, I think end of 2016, and I just created this cartoon avatar, which is free. So if you go to bitmoji.com, you can create your own. And then I started using him in my marketing on LinkedIn and on my blog. As, as just a kind of fun, friendly way of introducing my content. Because sometimes the content can be dry and boring, so you need something to lift it a little bit. Now, I don't suggest that everyone needs to go and get a cartoon, right? But it's, it works for me. Frankly, I would have put him in my book, but unfortunately, because of licensing issues, I actually wasn't allowed to, and I did ask, and I wasn't allowed to. So otherwise, he would have been involved in that. So it's just a calling card for me now. If people see my character, because I've used him so often, He's kind of like a virtual representation of me, so I don't have to keep taking photographs of me. And and he's a good device. It's it's yet another hook that reminds people of my, my style and what I put out there. So if you haven't got anything like that, then you could either go and get something custom designed or you could just think, you know, what kind of visual devices can I include in my content? And as well as that, there's also things like audio branding, which I didn't really get into. But if a video ends with a certain sound or a podcast starts with a certain sound, or there's a certain sound in the middle for a different kind of thing, a transition, you know, all of those things, you, you let's say you put a sound at the beginning of your podcast. If you use that in a LinkedIn post, in a video and it starts the same way again it just kind of reinforces oh that's billy's sound mm-hmm. so so there's audio branding there's visual branding there's 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 text branding and who knows there might be some augmented reality thing down the line but it's all the, the idea of giving people the impression that this is always that same person talking yeah and it, as you said it reinforces the brand and spe- it's, i just had my audio branding done so i i'm very familiar with this and so i'm actually just about to roll it out and you'll see it very nice. shortly like it uh okay so let's talk about editing very quickly because i i don't want to leave that one without it's really important to understand that just because you write something doesn't mean that it's ready for release yeah. talk a little bit about your process there i already mentioned the reading out loud is is one um, reading backwards. Maybe you could yeah. tell us why that's an idea. Yeah. And then there's also some other ways. Uh, I, I forget exactly what this, this dyslexic font that you use. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so what a lot of people find is that they'll write something and then they'll print it out and then they'll go, oh, I've just seen a typo. And the reason being is because your view of the document has changed. You've gone from a digital version to something that's on paper that, that that it has different margins to what you're looking at on the screen, that kind of thing. So if you can change the view of your text, so you can change the background color, you can change the color of the text itself, you can change the spacing, the font. The, so the, the 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 typeface I recommend for this is called um, Open Dyslexic, which looks a little bit weird. It's really good for people with dyslexia. It makes the text look totally different from the way you wrote it, and 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 you know the words fall in different places and stuff. And what that means is it'll be more likely for you to see errors in that thing, and then you can correct it, set it back to the settings it was before, and then you're ready to go. Uh, another thing you should do really is to leave some time between the writing and the editing. You know, the longer you can leave it, really, the more it'll feel fresh when you come back to it. So if you write and edit in one session that's not going to be productive. Also, if you write and edit as you go, that's also not productive either. That slows down your creative juices. It's much better to just write everything, leave it for a while, and then come back and edit it when you're most alert. That's the best way to get a result. And look for 
everything that you can chop out that you don't absolutely need so that you leave the essence of your message because people don't have time for long walls of text and war and peace. They just don't have time. So get to the point. Get to the point, which is something you talk about in your book. You have a, every chapter you start with, get to the point. Last question for you, John. You talk about this concept of amplify or die. And part of that is that you've taken on a lot of the responsibility of your social media. Yeah. And you found that doing that has afforded you a better chance to interact with your audience. Why is it so important to make sure that when you get your message out there that you're actively involved in the beginning and any other last bit of advice to make sure you're able to amplify your message? Yeah, I mean, there's no point spending all of that time creating some piece of content and then not accelerating it through your networks, right? So you, the moment that you create a piece of content, you should be thinking about how can I make this thing go further? How can I promote this thing? So if you've got a strong social network presence, you need to be sharing straight away. If you've got an email list, you need to be putting that content out there. If there are other platforms that you want to stand out on, you take that one creative endeavor of, let's say I've made a video, and then you can repurpose it into different things. Like you can take out the audio and turn it into a podcast. You can turn it into social media graphics. You can turn it into a long form article. All of those things cover your bases and make sure that people see your content because maybe only about 2% of your followers will see any one given piece of content. So you need to really promote things for people to see it. And especially in today's pay to play era, if you're on Facebook, you've got no chance of people seeing stuff unless you're paying. I like LinkedIn because it's got such good organic reach, but you need to be present and you need to push your content and you need to interact with anyone who interacts back with you. So foster those comments, build those connections with people so that they want to talk about your stuff. They want to share your stuff. It's really important. Without that oxygen of publicity, there's no point having created the content in the first instance. So it's a really important thing that a lot of people just overlook. John, so grateful for all of the wisdom that you've imparted and the insights. Your book is absolutely fantastic. Content DNA, please check that book out. You could also find him on his website, aspirian.co.uk. That's E-S-P-I-R-I-A-N.co.uk. And literally anything you want to know about him, including 21 Truths and a Lie or <laughs> some variation of there, which you'll get a kick out of that. There's just so much information, his brand identity. Of course, you could find him on LinkedIn. He is a LinkedIn legend, but he'll give you the time of day because as he said, he's not a spray and pray where he's inviting 500 people to connect. He creates meaningful relationships, relationships meant to last, not flash in the pan. He's on Twitter. You can find him. Handle is Asperian, E-S-P-I-R-I-A-N. And what am I missing? What he's, he's relentlessly helpful. So, you know, what, what, what else? Where else can they find you, my brother? Well, that's pretty much everything. I try and put everything through LinkedIn as much as possible because that's my main social media platform. But I've got such an unusual surname. If you search for Spirin, you're probably going to find me everywhere. So that's the thing to look for. So thanks so much, Billy. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. And as John says in his book, I'm here to help good people with hearts and minds. So look me up. I'm easy to find. And man, thank you so much, John, for being on Inside Out. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Billy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. 
You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.